0: Hey everybody, welcome to the official screenwriting podcast number 25. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week I'll be talking about This is the End and the Heat. And I also want to remind you that Ender's Game is coming to theaters on November 1st. Here's my recommendation. Get the book now. I almost always recommend that with the movie you see the film and then you read the book. If you're going to do both. In this case, I recommend something different. I recommend you read the book now, and that way you put some space between the film and the book. And you can really experience one of the greatest books that's ever been written that's incredibly visual before you see the film, before you see how they interpreted this incredibly action-packed book. So, you know, once you've seen the film, you can go and read the book and get that deeper experience with it. The problem, though, is that you're basically just going to be mentally replaying the scenes and sequences from the film and using the actors that you saw in the film to sort of represent the characters in your mind's eye, which is almost impossible to undo once you've seen a movie uh, based on a book. So, again, read it now see the film later, and put a couple of months between one of the greatest books ever and the film, so that maybe you'll forget about some of the stuff and get to enjoy the twists and turns that the book has to offer. I had a really interesting conversation with a writer a couple weeks ago, and I actually took notes on it. Um, I want to just talk about a couple of the points that he threw out there, because he had a project, and he seemed like a really nice guy, really intelligent guy. Um, And, uh, you know, I took the time to sort of correct him or at least give him my version of reality as it related to his project. Uh, because he was espousing a lot of things that I talk about in my, the first article I ever wrote called "Myth Busting," which was a collection of the 10 most popular misconceptions about screenwriting in the entertainment business that new writers would say to me and in this case you know this guy threw out about eight of these things uh and i'll just hit a couple of them one he kept saying um you know i wrote this because i wanted you know the reason i wrote this is because i want it to be a trilogy and i have a trilogy in mind and you know you can have an idea for launching a franchise today but in my book i say for the love of god don't write a trilogy or don't think about writing a trilogy you can write a script you know Jack Reacher to me is sort of a throwing down the gauntlet of this is a new franchise we'll see if it actually happens if they make another film I hope to God they do because it's a really cool film and a great character but um you know you don't want to be thinking about writing the sequel while you're writing the original it just leads to a really terrible screenplay because you're setting up stuff that's not being paid off in the screenplay and not focusing on delivering something that's competent um the second thing or one of the other things he said was well i've sat down with the line producer and we've determined that we need 50 million dollars to make this movie Wow. Um, you know, I explained to him that based on what he was telling me about it, he would be lucky to find $5 million in independent financing. And, you know, that really the budget that he worked out with a line producer minus having a director involved is completely useless and it's funny nobody ever sits down or says to me oh i worked sat down with the line producer because i wanted to see what this film would look like at you know an eight hundred thousand dollar budget they never do that they come back with ridiculous numbers as if a studio was financing this thing and there's no reason to do that because your job is to sell a script to a studio not to do a budget nobody cares about the bullshit budget that you had somebody do based on numbers that are completely made up um so, in this case, uh, you know, I again, that's something that happens a lot and I hear a lot. Um, let me see what other things he talked about. Uh, he said, oh, it's really controversial subject matter. Like, that's a good thing. It's not a good thing. Um, you know, I've heard people say that about, oh, my script's about abortion, and that's something that's always on the news, or it's an issue that, you know, hey, Texas is having this big fight over abortion right now, so let's do an abortion project. Of course, if you've been to the movies, you've seen that there really hasn't been a film about abortion, I think, since Listen to Me, a movie with Kirk Cameron, which I guess makes a little bit of sense now that he would star in a film like that, where they were arguing in against abortion at some mock trial kind of uh thing and that film was done in the 80s so you know the, having a controversial subject matter is not a good thing it's just a way to scare people off um, unless you're dealing with something that's super current in terms of the culture in terms of youth culture that's often something if, if it's new and if it's um, you know we're joking we're joking in the screenwriting class that I teach uh, somebody has a dance movie and we're saying oh it should be like the first twerking movie um, because they 're doing that they 're you know they 're well they 're not actually doing a twerking movie, but they you know after dubstep became really big, they announced that they were going to do a dubstep movie i mean that kind of stuff you can you can sort of leap on. Uh, I, I think twerking is a ridiculous example and more of a joke because it's just a singular dance move. Although that didn't stop them from making two lambada movies that were released the same weekend back in 1990. Lambada was a sort of salsa dance that became popular, um, you know, in the very late 80s or 1989, and they raced two really shitty movies uh, into production based on this new dance. Uh, and both of them bombed. So in any case, uh, he also said one other thing uh, that I wanted to talk about, which was that... He wrote a teenager is the hero for this movie, and that was part of his idea. Well, it's a trilogy, so you need to start him off young in order to show him at later points so that you can, you know, serve this higher purpose. Again, there's no teenager who gets $50 million movies made. Oh, I remember one reason I wanted to talk about this, and the reason is that something really huge happened. I can't remember if I talked about it on the podcast, but this is one of the most interesting developments in feature film financing that's come along in a long time which is that Johnny Depp was attached to play Whitey Bulger, who is actually on trial right now. He's a Boston mobster, a really famous one. And the Jack Nicholson character in The Departed was based on Whitey Bulger. He was a badass mobster who actually was an, also an FBI informant at the same time. Uh so there is the Whitey Bulger story that Johnny Depp was going to star in Barry Levinson who directed Rain Man won an Oscar for best director for Rain Man and directed one of I think the greatest films I've ever seen Bugsy starring Warren Beatty was going to direct this film and they went to Cannes to get the financing and they came up short they needed 60 million they got 50 million in financing and the project is not happening as a result of it. They supposedly went and asked Depp to cut his fee, and he wouldn't do it. And they, or they, or they couldn't cut the budget enough. You know, just because somebody reports that that's what happened doesn't actually mean that that's the case. Because maybe they didn't get 50 million. Maybe they got 45. You never know when it comes to this stuff. Never believe anything that you read because it's all sort of spin. And even the spin of oh, Johnny Depp walked away from the project because he wouldn't take 10 million instead of 20. It could have just been a PR move on behalf of a producer in order to sort of shame him back into the project. You just never know. I'm not saying that's what happened. I again, you just don't know unless you are talking to somebody who's giving the authentic uh, sort of heads up as to what's happening. So in any case, you know we have a situation now where Johnny Depp can't get a. And by the way, this was before the Lone Ranger, before the Lone Ranger bomb. You know, there was an expectation that the Lone Ranger was going to do some business. That, of course, as we got, you know, two, three weeks out, it was clear that it was not going to. But this was before that, so you know, this isn't Lone Ranger Fallout where investors are scared because they don't think Johnny Depp is. And again, fifty million dollars for for a movie like that seems like a lot to me these days. But the the fact that they couldn't get sixty million for a film starring Johnny Depp, uh, directed by Barry Levinson. To me, really says something about the state of cinema and the state of financing, and that's why it was so ridiculous that this guy was claiming that he would need 50 million and was running around to investors. Because the the thing about this was that he actually had something where you could go to independent financiers or independent investors, people just with money who are part of the community that this film was speaking to. It had it rarely this occurs but sometimes you do can write about a subject where there's a community of people that's large enough and wealthy enough that you can actually get a film financed there was a movie about the guy who started Alcoholics Anonymous although interestingly when I think about it I'm wondering how do they track down all the wealthy people in Alcoholics Anonymous because it's anonymous but you know it's a program that has a lot of very successful people involved with it and you know, you can find some people whose lives it changed who they credit with their success and who are willing to throw a couple million dollars at a film and it did get made starring Aaron Eckhart and pretty much went direct to Redbox, I guess. I haven't seen it. Um, you know, hey, email me if you've seen it. If it's any good, I'll watch it. But um this was sort of a similar situation and the problem with going for fifty million is if he could have raised ten or fifteen million then you have to give that money back if you don't hit 50 million if you tell people you're going to make a 50 million dollar movie and that's when they're investing in you can't go back to them and say hey will you keep it in as we try to do something uh, a lot smaller um, you know you lose your investors like that so by going for something ridiculous you're actually shooting yourself in the foot because you know this film could be done for a couple million dollars probably there's no special effects that can't be done on a computer today there's no battle that can't be captured on you know with digital effects today um so you don't need to make a film even a film that seems huge doesn't necessarily need to be huge um in any case moving on uh this is the end my big issue with this film as you may know it's about uh jay baruchel and uh, seth rogan play themselves Uh, as young Hollywood actors they go to a party at James Franco's house and the apocalypse happens and you have about five or six actors who are trapped in James Franco's house while monsters roam the earth. Everybody's either been spirited away to heaven or fallen down to hell, because uh, the earth opens up and we see a lot of people falling into the hole uh, and burning alive. Um, so anyway, the, the thing about this movie that didn't work for me, and I love the film. It's funny throughout. There's not three minutes that goes by that you're not gonna laugh out loud. So I recommend seeing it. But the problem is that it goes in circles in the second half of the second act, and here's why. They don't use archetypes in order to create characters with real differences. Um, every character is just seen as selfish, and that's the explanation as to why they're still on Earth, why they haven't been spirited up to heaven. Uh, you know, as part of the rapture. Um, rapture. You know, this is not my religion. And by the way, I, th- I find it really interesting that you know it's a bunch of. Jewish writers, actors, directors, stars, everything um, in this film. And it's a very, very Christian version of the apocalypse. Um, So in any case, the, the problem with this film is that they all have characters and they're all selfish and we see them acting selfishly, but that's it. There's no real individuality to these characters. There's no real argument or moral argument that occurs between them that develops over the course of the movie or where they behave in ways that is anything other than funny. And, again, I think this movie stretches the limits of what represents authentic script development and what's just funny. Seth Rogen, I think, is a great screenwriter. Him and Evan Goldberg have written some wonderful screenplays together. And, you know, they they wrote super bad. I, I, I don't know why that didn't... Why... We don't see that level of development in this screenplay, perhaps because it was a really low-budget film and they didn't necessarily have the producing help that they might have had back in the past uh, that allowed some of the funniest writers to really, you know, add the, the bulk of what holds or the architecture of what holds one of these movies together. So I sort of had a similar problem with The Heat. The Heat is also really, really funny. I laughed throughout the entire movie. I really enjoyed it, but there aren't enough situations with tension. Um, These characters are rarely racing toward a deadline. The ticking clock in scenes and sequences is rarely obvious. And you're left with a film that sort of has the pacing of something like Bridesmaids, which it's from the director of Bridesmaids. Um, And again, we capture that great comedy, But, you know, the film is at its funniest, and when there's momentum, when they are, again, under the gun, racing toward a deadline, ticking clock, you know, tick-tock, you know, that is the most important thing for films like this. um, To put your characters in high-pressure situations, and that also amplifies the comedy when that occurs. And here, we don't really have that, so if you've seen the film, you probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, If you haven't, rent the DVD or it's still in theaters. You should see it. It's really funny and you'll enjoy it. Again, I, I just felt like if they had done a better job on the police story and in terms of just adding more tension and pressure to their individual sequences the film would have operated more effectively. And, you know, both of these films, by the way, were well-reviewed. Both This is the End and the Heat got a majority of critics to, you know, give them good reviews. But, you know, again, that's because the humor is there. I think the architecture of the scripts, in both cases, could have been improved. Although, with This is the End, it's completely character-based in terms of what it's lacking. And with The Heat, it's more of the lacking in terms of the understanding of the genre. But I want to talk real quickly about an article, and then we will be cutting out early today. Uh, It's going to be a shorter podcast than normal. Um, The Heat does some really interesting things. Uh, and I'm reading from, these are not my thoughts, The Heat's Subtly Radical Portrayal of Police Women by Ashley Fetters. And you can read this at theatlantic.com. Um, it seems like, you know, this is a twist on the Buddy Cop movie, uh, but just with two women. And that's true. But there's a couple of really big things. And this writer, by the way, is quoting a study that was done on police women and women in law enforcement in cinema so this is where a lot of that information comes from this study that was done in 2008 professor neil king published a paper in gender and society where he found portrayals of police women in 291 wow uh, cop action feature films between 1973 and 2008 Um, out of 291 cop movies 24 feature female police officers as the main protagonist or hero and we have films like Signs of the Lambs and *Miscongeniality* Congeniality uh, in that category. But this film, The Heat, does something really different, which is that often in these movies, the women that are shown as detectives, police officers, FBI agents are the newest and least experienced officers on the force. 42% of the, of the women cops in these films were rookies. Whereas only 10% of the men in cop movies were rookies. That's really interesting. So it was radical for these women in this film just to be pushing 40. Um, you know, Sandra Bullock is actually, you know, in her late 40s, and props to her for they don't even fudge the timeline. You know, we see her 1982 yearbook um, from high school, and I thought that was really exceptional because they don't try to sort of portray her as a 41-year-old, which they could have done. She's not 41, she's, you know, in her late 40s. Um, and so in any case you're showing two women who are police off well one's an FBI agent the other one's a police officer and they're working the same case and they're both really good at what they do they're both experienced they're both experts that's so rare for these types of films Um, often also in these films the female cops are detectives who hunt serial killers and they do it from a distance or undercover So women are often seen doing intellectual work in these films. Uh, They're doing investigations of government and corruption, uh, but they're, they're not on the street like we see in this film. They're not, you know, slugging it out with bad guys. And that's something that The Heat does. So that's a really interesting uh, change where we see they're interacting with prostitutes and drug dealers and, you know, Melissa McCarthy chases after a suspect, you know, she hits him with her car and then chases him over a fence. You know, it's, these women are fully capable of being action heroes and that's something that's really rare with female cops in cinema. Also, and that, that leads to another point, the female cops often don't use violence, uh in films, women are relatively uninvolved in combat, um, and they only kill or incapacitate half of the amount of people that men uh do in these films. Um isn't that kind of interesting? They counted that up. So police women killed or incapacitated on average 3.46 criminals in a movie, while the average for a policeman was seven point one nine kills or incapacitations. Um, and women are seen in relatively few foot chases or fist fights. That's all that the heat is. That's all you get. A lot of foot chases, fist fights, and you know, you know, rock 'em sock 'em action. So I think uh, that that's something, you know, that that this writer, uh, Katie Dippold, uh, analyzed. She would have had to have in order to come up with a script like this. And often I talk about, you know, understanding exactly how genres function and then doing something new with it. And I think you need to sort of do a study. It doesn't have to be, look, you're not going to look at 291 films and write a paper for Gender and Society magazine necessarily. But you should be able to to get an idea of what's out there, um, how films in the genre function, and how you're doing something just a little bit different and fresh. And that's something that this film does. And, you know, the last point is that in a lot of these cop movies, uh, the female cops just want to be loved. They 80% of them start out single, and then uh, they take on new lovers during the story and they're twice as likely to end up with a man at the end of the film, and The Heat does not require these women to do that. There's the suggestion of that. Both Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy have men who are interested in them in in this film, where they try to get them to go out and whatever. So they both have a love interest, a de facto love interest, because they don't ever go out with these men. In Melissa McCarthy's case, it's a guy she had a one-night stand with, actually played by her husband in real life, um who, who co-starred in bridesmaids is the guy that she hooks up with in that film. Um, and with Sandra Bullock, it's the uh, it's an FBI agent who's working as her assistant. Uh, in, in both cases, they're sort of pursued by these men, um, but they're not interested. And they don't end up with either of these guys at the end of the film. Um, that's really interesting and different. So, you know, because they don't need to do that. Really, all you need to do with these characters, you know, the characters in cop movies often start out as alone and end up with a new family, a surrogate family. And that's what these women end up with at the end of the film. So, in any case, uh, it's a great article you should check out. Again, it's in TheAtlantic.com. That's all I have for you this week, and hopefully I'll be back next week with a new episode. Uh, Again, you can go to my website, officialscreenwriting.com. You can hire me to read your screenplay. You can hire me for a a concept consultation where you can send me, like, up to five pages of your concepts, your ideas, all the paragraphs of things that you've been thinking about writing and, you know, should talk to somebody about before you actually sit down and write it for six months. Um, Again, you can hire me to read your screenplay. Also, if you go to starterscreenplay.com, buy my book. And I will personally autograph it for you, send it off to you with free shipping. So it pretty much is the same price as it would be on Amazon. In any case, that's all for this week. And I will try to be back next week with a new uh, fresh podcast for you. Take care.